and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 157. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Richard Para. Hi, Kip. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to have you. You absolutely possess one of the best historical minds of anyone I know. And while we will both admit that we're not experts on the topic we're going to discuss today, I was very eager to have you on given a phone call you and I had a few years ago about the dropping of the atomic bomb on Japan in World War II and some of the ethical, moral, and historical implications. So to start off, I think it might be wisest to share with the audience some of the historical context, often from an American perspective, leading up to the decision to drop the bomb, the construction of the bomb, and some of the geopolitical factors that led America to construct the first nuclear weapon. So we're going to pick up in 1945. And in 1945, the Allies in the Pacific largely the United States, but also the Republic of China, Australia, and many other allied nations in the Pacific. These nations had successfully executed an island-hopping campaign that began in response from Pearl Harbor all the way across the Pacific. And up until around May of 1945, this island-hopping strategy had led to the beginning of the Japanese home islands, which of course are a spiritually significant territory for the Japanese people. The most distinct and notorious of these were Okinawa and Iwo Jima, and these were the two first real home island invasions that expended tremendous amounts of blood on both sides. There was devastating losses for the Americans, but especially for the Japanese because there was a spiritual and political expectation of the Japanese people to defend their country at all costs. As a result, there were very few people that were taken prisoner. Civilians were expected to either fight the enemy as they came, or they were expected to kill themselves. This was the kind of atmosphere that led into the planning of the invasion of the Japanese home islands, the proper large ones, Honshu, Kyushu, Hokkaido, the large Japanese islands. And it really set the stage for a gruesome, bloody campaign. Keep in mind, of course, that we had just finished in Europe. We had won the war with the Allies there. We were shifting tremendous amounts of personnel and materiel over to the Pacific Theater, staging a massive invasion of the Japanese home islands. And I think what's particularly prominent there is the description of Japanese wartime culture in that era, because it definitely motivated, perhaps in a reductive way, the U.S. military decision to eventually drop the bomb, and we will get into that. But I would ask that listeners keep track of that understanding, not as true or false, but as a potential motivation for the decisions to come that, of course, we will get into. And the second piece of the puzzle that I find worthy of discussion is the Manhattan Project, the decision to work on a nuclear weapon, which was new for the time. The science had only recently been developed as a result of the splitting of the uranium atom in Germany. And so if you'd pick it up there, I'd love to know what historical details you find relevant from the Manhattan Project and, of course, the passing of the torch, so to speak, between FDR and President Truman. Right. So in the early 1940s, the British and American intelligence, but I believe it was really British intelligence, had determined that the Germans had been pursuing an atomic bomb. And of course, Germany's scientific and technological prowess is well documented. And this was a huge concern to the British, who were at the time in a position where they were isolated and suffering from bombing campaigns known as the Blitz, 
And it was very important for them to maintain their independence and sovereignty. An atomic bomb would have changed the game anywhere in the world at any time. As a result, the British started to create their own project. But because of the danger that was posed to the scientists with the constant bombing and the threat of invasion, Winston Churchill, who was the prime minister of the United Kingdom, asked President Roosevelt before the war began, meaning before the United States entered the war, if American scientists could combine with British scientists to work on the bomb. They agreed to this. It ended up taking place in the United States for security reasons, because, of course, the United States was not being bombed at the time. This combined incredible efforts of American and British scientists, but more specifically, it also included many expatriate scientists in Europe who were escaping their countries after they had been invaded by Germany, or they were Germans that were not sympathetic to the National Socialist cause. So the actual Manhattan Project was named because it was sort of given to the Army Corps of Engineers district in New York, in Manhattan. And so it was given that name, even though the development itself did not take place in New York City. It combined a lot of scientists' work in what would end up becoming the National Laboratories. So not only in New Mexico, Los Alamos, New Mexico, which is where the bulk of the research took place, but also at the University of Chicago, the University of California, and Berkeley. So it combined a lot of really brilliant minds, but not just American and British, really brilliant Danish, German, all kinds of physicists and bright people to come together and work on this large project. They really saw it as a wartime duty, a duty to mankind. Many of them had misgivings later on, but these people would not have worked on the bomb had they not believed that it was significant and important in order to end the war and to prevent countries and hostile nations like Germany and Japan from developing this capability. And of course, historians believe that FDR had every intention of dropping the bomb against an enemy. Now, it's key to note here that FDR passed away in April of 1945, before victory over Europe and before the atomic bomb was ever dropped on Japan and, of course, led to the end of World War II, although some historians, of course, debate whether or not the bomb was necessary to end World War II in Japan, but FDR was not alive for that event, although he, of course, had commissioned the project alongside Winston Churchill and so knew, generally speaking, the direction it would take. And on the night that FDR passed, Eleanor Roosevelt is said to have gone to Truman and said, the president is dead. And Truman had supposedly had nightmares that looked exactly like this. He was concerned about what that sudden transition of power might look like because he had only been vice president for a few months and had only met apparently with Roosevelt twice. And during those interactions, they did not discuss substantial issues of foreign policy. And in those 82 days of his vice presidency, he did not know any of the deals with Russia, etc., that are essential to such a large-scale conflict. It would be necessary to understand the geopolitical leanings, the negotiations, etc., all of which I imagine were and continue to be in the modern era very complex elements of international relations. And of course, very crucially for this conversation, he did not know the Manhattan Project existed and was told and informed, brought up to date, so to speak. And he acknowledged, after several reports on these tests, three separate times that the bomb had devastating and unprecedented power. So his later decision to drop the bomb, first on Hiroshima and later on Nagasaki, was not ignorantly made. He was quite aware, at least as far as a human being could be, having not witnessed a test dropping of the bomb, 
of its awesome and tremendous capacity for destruction. And of course, awesome in this case, not used in the 21st century connotation of positive, but awe-inspiring, often something associated with ancient perceptions of the impact or presence of God and how people would react to such a powerful phenomenon. And it's key to note that some of the scientists were very concerned as the bomb began construction. Einstein would later remark that his one regret in life was writing a letter to FDR urging him to aid in the construction of the atomic bomb. And he had been persuaded by German expatriates who were aware, generally speaking, of the scientific developments happening in Europe that might have led to a very different outcome in this war and in world history. There were other initial formulas that estimated that a nuclear explosion might ignite all hydrogen in the atmosphere and set the world ablaze, which, of course, would be catastrophic. Later calculations suggested that that had been somewhat erroneous, and the chances of this apocalyptic outcome would be about three in a million. And so the scientists said, we'll take that chance. But to focus in on the summer of 1945 and meetings like those at Potsdam and the Russian intent during World War II towards Japan, that to me is a central element in the decision to drop the atomic bomb for what it might show our eventual Cold War opponent. And I think that's the next logical chapter in this story. Right, Kip. So before FDR died, there was a very famous meeting between the tripartite alliance. Britain, the United States, and the Soviet Union. The leaders, of course, were FDR, Joseph Stalin, and Winston Churchill. Those leaders met at Yalta, and it was a really critical meeting because all of the sides recognized that the European war was going to come to a close. The Allies had made tremendous advances, and the end of the war was imminent. And so the leaders met to discuss what the world would look like afterward, basically dividing up responsibilities and territories for influence, So this was a very pivotal meeting, and they promised to meet again after the war had ended. That meeting took place at Potsdam, and it took place after FDR died. It also took place during British parliamentary elections, in which Churchill's party, his conservative party, lost. So during those meetings at Potsdam, a lot was discussed about the future of Europe, and of course, about what would happen in the Pacific Theater. What was interesting about this discussion is that it was the first time these leaders had met Truman. Truman was pretty much a nobody coming into this. He had served in the U.S. Senate. His only interaction with the atomic bomb project had been sort of accidentally while he was a senator. He was very much into fiscal responsibility, and he did a lot of investigations into government spending. And he came across a multi-billion dollar expenditure, which turned out to be this project. But he was warned that it was so secret that he wouldn't be able to do research on it. He later found out that it was about the atomic bomb. When FDR initiated the atomic bomb, his greatest fear was that it would be money that was wasted. It wasn't that it would cause a moral dilemma. So at Potsdam, the leaders discussed the future of Europe and of the world after the war would eventually conclude. One of the big negotiating points was the entry of the Soviet Union into the Pacific War. Now, up until this point, the Soviets had focused exclusively on the European theater. So the burden of responsibility for fighting the war and winning the war in the Pacific had largely fell on the United States and its smaller allies. 
FDR had constantly pushed the Soviets to enter the Pacific War once the European War ended, and Stalin had agreed to this, but it was largely a fait accompli because the Soviets wanted to gain territory in Asia, notably in Manchuria, potentially in Korea, and also in Japan. It was inevitable that the Soviets would enter into the Pacific conflict, but it was not clear how and it was not clear when. And so the stage is set for the prospective invasion of Japan. Now, it should be understood that there were horrible and atrocious losses in World War II. Tens of millions of people were killed. Estimates are as high as 50. The Soviets themselves lost 20 million people. The invasion of Japan would likely have cost at least hundreds of thousands of lives and arguably more on the Japanese side than the Allies. And that is said with confidence because of the examples of Okinawa and Iwo Jima, the fact that the Japanese were willing to fight to the last man. And I have a quote about this from David McCullough's work Truman, which is one of the significant biographies of the president. He writes, Japan had some 2.5 million regular troops on the home islands. But every male between the ages of 15 and 60, every female from 17 to 45, was being conscripted and armed with everything from ancient brass cannon to bamboo spears, taught to strap explosives to their bodies and throw themselves under advancing tanks. One woman would remember being given a carpenter's awl and instructed that killing just one American would do. The Japanese general in charge of defense plans told other senior officers, by pouring 20 divisions into the battle within two weeks of the enemy's landing, we will annihilate him entirely and ensure a Japanese victory. Thousands of planes were ready to serve as kamikazes. To no one with the American and allied forces in the Pacific did it look as though the Japanese were about to quit. And it was during the conference in Potsdam where President Truman received word of the successful atomic test in New Mexico at what is called Trinity Site. When Truman received word, it was a very easy decision. He had already received advice from a commission that he assembled about how to use the atomic bomb. The commission had indicated that it must be used in a military purpose and that no demonstration in an uninhabited place would force a Japanese surrender. That commission was made up of diplomatic, military, scientific, and even industry experts. Truman took this advice very seriously. And so, when the bomb was developed and it was announced that it was successfully tested, it was really no decision. It was very clear that Truman had to make this decision, especially facing the prospect of millions of potential casualties by invading the Japanese home islands. And Truman writes in his memoirs that the scientific advisors of the committee reported that they could propose no technical demonstration, such as over a deserted island, likely to bring an end to the war. It had to be used against an enemy target. And Truman took ownership of the decision to drop the bomb, again from his memoirs. The final decision of where and when to use the atomic bomb was up to me. Let there be no mistake about it. I regarded the bomb as a military weapon and never had any doubt that it should be used. The top military advisors to the president recommended its use, and when I talked to Churchill, he unhesitatingly told me that he favored the use of the atomic bomb if it might aid to end the war. And so the president and his staff narrowed the list of potential targets down to four. Truman insisted that these targets be primarily industrial or military-related to minimize civilian casualties. Sadly, the large majority of casualties in the bombings were actually civilians. 
the reason why there were four was because weather and other factors could prevent the bombardiers from actually attacking one of the sites, and they needed alternatives. And that actually happened in the first bombing in Hiroshima. The original target was another city, but poor weather forced a change in plans. Truman was aboard a ship in the Atlantic returning from the Potsdam Conference when he received word of the successful attack, and he was jubilant. In retrospect, that sounds very harsh, but one must understand that Truman and his advisors truly believed that a series of atomic bombs would be necessary to compel the Japanese to surrender. And so when he received the news, he was beaming and announced that it was the greatest thing in history. That quote has been maligned over history as if Truman was gleeful at the existence of nuclear weapons. He was not. He had serious reservations about their use. He felt a duty and obligation to use them against Japan to end the war, but he did not take pleasure in their use. He took pleasure in the lives he believed were being saved. And of course, the first bombing in Hiroshima killed between an estimated 129,000 and 246,000, many of course, as you said, Richard, being civilian casualties. And one piece of information I've always found intriguing is that the U.S. would have preferred unconditional surrender from Japan, but if I understand the scenario correctly, Japan feared unconditional surrender because it might dissolve their monarchical structure at the time. And in Japan, the emperor, Hirohito, was seen as a god, and I find that detail particularly intriguing because the power of the atomic weapon is described by many in almost godlike terms. And I think a number of people might historically reduce this scenario and say, well, this people believed so thoroughly in their political system and in that structure of being led by someone who was seen as divine, that they would need tremendous military persuasion effectively in order to eventually surrender. I don't believe that history is that black and white, but I do wonder if perhaps another culture had lived in Japan or had the bomb been used against a different enemy. And of course, because it's history, there is no way to know. Would U.S. military leadership have determined, as they did with Japan, that the bombing the military use of an atomic weapon was in fact necessary? Which is, of course, a question to consider and not one to answer, but I would contend is an important question. And of course, this episode is being released on the anniversary of the bombing of Nagasaki on August 9th of 1945 and three days after the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima on August 6th. And the first bomb is estimated to have killed 20,000 soldiers in Hiroshima and between 70,000 and 146,000 civilians. And three days later, between 39,000 and 80,000 are believed to have been killed in Nagasaki. And I think it's also important that we describe the decision to drop the second atomic bomb, because we are the only country to have ever used nuclear weapons in a military capacity against an enemy, and absolutely against civilian targets, which cannot be ignored. But we did so twice. And I'd be very curious to hear the historical relevance of that. From your perspective, Richard. Well, Kip, that's a very interesting question. I believe that there is some controversy in the dropping of the second bomb, not necessarily that the bomb was dropped, but that it was dropped mere three days after the first. The second bomb was not intended to be dropped until several days after the first, more than three days, in fact. But circumstances like weather accelerated that plan. The United States had broken the Japanese codes for military and diplomatic 
purposes, also known as Radio Tokyo. So the Americans were able to monitor Japanese intelligence and Japanese communications. And all of that intelligence showed that the Japanese were not close to surrender. It was not until the second bomb was dropped that the circumstances changed. Hirohito, the emperor, called a meeting of all of his cabinet, so to speak, and he made the ultimate decision against the wishes of several of his military commanders to surrender. As you mentioned, Kip, an unconditional surrender was the demand from the Allies, and the Japanese were determined to maintain the emperor system in Japan. Ultimately, the emperor system was preserved. As we know today, that role is largely ceremonial and less involved than the emperor was prior to World War II, but unconditional surrender was the demand that the Allies posed, and it was accepted because of the atomic bomb. Now, some historians believe that the Japanese were willing to surrender on different terms, and it's possible. But again, these terms would have been very favorable to the Japanese. The Japanese believed that the West, especially the United States, would not be willing to expend the blood and treasure required to invade the home islands. So some historians believe that any concession on those potential surrender terms would have resulted in the Japanese detaching from peace talks. As an example of an ideal Japanese surrender, the Japanese hierarchy would have rejected war crime trials, would have maintained military and political control in the home islands, and would have essentially isolated Japan once again from the West. It would have been fought to a stalemate, similar to the results of the Korean War. And that was simply unacceptable to the Allies. And in terms of history, it was likely not feasible because the Russians were not just determined to make gains in the Japanese home islands, but also throughout the Pacific and especially in China. So the Japanese realized that their days were numbered, but the majority of them were determined to fight until the very last man to preserve the dignity of the emperor system and their spiritual home. And of course, we've spent a great deal of time in this episode discussing the historical context which is not usually the format of this show, but in order to examine some of the morality and some of the controversy surrounding the decision to drop the atomic bomb, it was necessary to explore some of that historical context. And one of the sources of complexity for me is this distinction between civilian and soldier in the Japanese homeland, because our understanding that the Japanese were all willing to give their lives in the role of a soldier, in a sense, to defend their homeland, almost blurs that line between civilian and soldier. I still feel as though civilian lives are civilian lives, but if there is a preceding understanding of the self as a resource for the state, I wonder to what extent that changes how we perceive a civilian life as a casualty of war. Now, I will say openly that it is a very complex issue to talk about, and of course, the dropping of the atomic bomb, though catastrophic and devastating and inhumane, in my opinion, did of course produce certain outcomes in the Cold War and in the era in which we currently live that are arguably more stable, in a sense, because of the military use of an atomic weapon and the demonstration on a global stage it provided all of humanity. And I think it is a very difficult subject to discuss. So I will say, if at any point we offend or misremember facts, we absolutely accept any contributions from listeners and thoughts you might have or opinions of these events. But Richard, I would ask you, as someone who comes from a military background, any discussions you've had perhaps with family members or thoughts you've had in reflecting on this event? 
Sure, Kip. Well, first, I want to say that I haven't served in the military, but I grew up in a military family, so I am familiar with the military to that degree. I should also mention that we are barely scratching the surface of the complexities, both historical and moral, of this issue, and many books have been written about this. And so we encourage all kinds of dialogue and communication with us to try to explore more elements of it. So if there's something that's been left out here, it was not purposefully left out of the episode. We just have limited time to discuss it. To answer your question, I think the triumphal narrative that was created after World War II of the invasions of Germany and surrounding territories and of Japan are very effective in inculcating pride and patriotism. And I think that had a large effect on me. Over the years and through my studies, I've recognized how horrible and terrible the atomic bombs were in Japan, but also the fire bombings in Tokyo and many other places in Japan that were used with conventional weapons. And in Germany as well, firebombing campaigns took the lives of far more civilians than did the atomic weapons, albeit the atomic weapons took more per bomb and changed the world forever. I happen to believe that nuclear weapons and the bipolar world that happened to emerge out of World War II and the Cold War created a stability which made things simple in terms of a geopolitical awareness. That does not mean that the Cold War was good, and it does not mean that the Cold War was righteous in all its forms. But the threat of mutually assured destruction did create an element of stability for both sides. And this is a discussion for a later podcast, perhaps, I hope. But the creation of a cliff and the fact that the world was walking at the edge of a cliff meant that it was more careful not to fall. What do you think about this? Well, I have a few opinions on the subject that may come across as controversial. And as with anything discussed on this show, I'm not asking that listeners or even you, Richard, agree with me, but simply consider some of the ideas discussed within this and other episodes. And I would say, in relation to that cliff comment, that I do think people, collectively, do not always have proper understandings of circumstances unless they are faced with the extreme. As a much less violent example than we've discussed, children or young students in school who procrastinate, I think, do so because in their minds they have not fully wrapped their heads around the concept of an impending deadline. Other examples include people who struggle with addiction and may not understand the gravity of the psychological, physical, emotional effects of those substances they use until perhaps they've come up against a near-fatal scenario or anecdotes I've heard of people who have been in car crashes that were nearly fatal and the resulting appreciation of life that emerged for those individuals because of how close they came to death. Now, as that relates to the atomic bomb, I agree with you, there is a gruesome tragedy in the way the bombs were used, the impact they had on the lives of people, and of course, those who were not killed were tremendously affected by radiation, as were their children, and of course, culturally, as was Japan and the entire globe because of what we saw as a result of these bombs. But I do wonder if perhaps, as a species, we do not recognize or understand a concept until we've seen its demonstration very vividly and very decidedly within our perspective right in front of us. Now, another belief that I've often held is that humanity, in my perspective, is always going to try and progress to develop technology. I think we are perpetually curious, and I think in our technological pursuits, at least as I believe it, 
in the span of time, human beings would eventually discover, create, and unleash the atomic bomb. And presuming that as a hypothetical given for the sake of historical discussion, I do think if the atomic bomb were going to be discovered and used, the earlier in history, the better. And I'm not saying the best, because I do have very mixed feelings about the use of this weapon, but had the atomic bomb been somehow discovered, created, and deployed thousands of years ago against far fewer targets, I've often considered that loss of life quantitatively would have been much less, and perhaps as we still reflect on the morals and value of historical stories and fables, that humanity may have been greatly affected by that event, again, hypothetically thousands of years ago, which may have prevented further destruction in the future. And in my opinion, the 72 years since the atomic bomb, at least on a geopolitical level, have been thoroughly affected by the presence in the back of our minds of that weapon. And as you said, the type of stability that it afforded us. And I think the difficulty in this conversation is that you can't necessarily weigh that. And history is so complex with billions of variables in human beings and the cultures and civilizations we create that it's nearly impossible to say, well, had we not done it then, we may have saved this many lives or any other hypothetical comparison. And I also don't necessarily know how to feel about the fact that Japanese casualties, many of whom were civilian, are the reason for global security in a sense, that the Japanese were those who had to suffer the bombings, the nuclear radiation, etc., as well as, I imagine, political and national humiliation that something so tragic had happened without a form of defense. Which is the final point I'd like to make before turning back to you, that Japan did not have a comparable weapon to retaliate with, and also that there is no clear defense in response to a nuclear weapon, which perhaps is the reason it creates so much stability, but on a level of combat and warfare, to know that annihilation in an almost godlike sense is imminent if a bomb has been deployed against you or your people, I really struggle to appreciate what that must have felt like. And of course, they did not predict that the bomb would be dropped. But even had they possessed that knowledge, there would have been no way to avert that moment in history. And also the fact that the bomb is not only destructive as guns, cannons, and other weapons are, but destructive in such a total way. There's this blinding flash of light comparable to that of the sun, the explosion incinerates anything in the nearby area. The shockwave can be felt from a great distance away. There is something deeply uncomfortable about the human possession, the mortal use of what again seems like a power that should not belong to any living creature, which is of course a perspective I have, and I know that other people might not, and I do recognize a certain military and stability benefit, as we've said multiple times, but I hope at least for the audience, as I'm currently experiencing, that we've illuminated some of the very unsettling gray area surrounding this issue. Well, Kip, I appreciate that perspective. I would like to add two things. The first is that I believe the atomic bomb or nuclear weapons are an object, and objects can be used for good or for evil. The objects in and of themselves are not evil, they're how they're used. That is a controversial statement, and many people would disagree with me. It's a statement that often comes up with things like gun control. And I think that it's important that we recognize that there can be good things that come from nuclear technology including energy. As far as I understand it, and I am no scientist, 
but I'm fairly confident that harnessing nuclear energy is the most efficient form that we have. Obviously, there are challenges of how to dispose of nuclear waste, but having the most efficient form of energy is very significant. The other point that I have to make is about Truman. There's no doubt that this was perhaps the decision for which he is most remembered and his presidency is most remembered. However, he made very many other decisions which, at the time, were very controversial and proved to be historically well-informed. So as an example, Truman desegregated the military with an executive order that happened pretty much out of nowhere with no warning to Congress, which was a tremendous action that changed the course of American history. Truman also initiated the Berlin Airlift, which was a very risky event and proved to be right in the long arc of history. Truman is also remembered for his doctrine, which includes the Marshall Plan of rebuilding the post-war world. And finally, perhaps the most controversial decision in terms of foreign and defense policy that Truman made during his presidency was when he fired General MacArthur, which at the time was incredibly unpopular. But historians largely agree that it was the right decision because General MacArthur was acting against the wishes of the president and therefore going against the Constitution of the United States. In all of those decisions, Truman faced backlash, immediate backlash from the press, from politicians, from potentially voters. And yet it is the decision in which he faced no opposition, the decision to use the atomic bomb, which has been judged the most harshly over the course of history. I find that very interesting. And I think that's worth considering today, 72 years after the bombs were dropped, because our president still needs to make very important decisions. And those decisions are going to be remembered by history. And perhaps the immediate reaction is not the one that historians will take in subsequent decades. And I'm really glad you bring it to our final avenue of discussion in this admittedly long episode. And so thank you to our listeners for being patient with us. And that final avenue of discussion is the visit President Obama made in 2016 to Hiroshima, which marked the first time a sitting U.S. president had done so. And it's worth mentioning that perhaps Obama set himself up for expectations in 2016 when he made the visit because one of his platforms earlier in his presidential career was the reduction of nuclear weapons. And he publicly envisioned a world without nuclear weapons, which is why the topic is particularly salient with regards to his presidency. And it should be noted that this episode is being recorded in November of 2016, and so Richard and I are not aware of the current president in 2017 who may have enacted a new policy with regard to nuclear weapons. So we apologize should any of this information be more contextually relevant in a way that neither of us could predict at this point in time. And you and I read an article from the LA Times entitled, Japan Doesn't Want the U.S. to Apologize for Bombing Hiroshima. Here's why. Written by Jake Adelston on April 29th of 2016. And Adelston says, Does Japan even want an apology? Likely not. A secret 2009 State Department cable published by WikiLeaks in 2011 indicated Japan was cool to the idea and worried that it would only serve to energize anti-nuclear activists in the country. But more prominently featured in this article, Adelston says, It could set off a chain reaction of apologies. The Prime Minister of Japan, Prime Minister Abe, gave a speech on the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II, which was a classic non-apology apology, and, quote, this administration allegedly hates to apologize. And some might hear that and think, well, 
Kip, you both mentioned earlier this Japanese culture of honor, but I would point out as an important distinction that no government wants to admit its failures to citizens, that there is an unspoken tenet, perhaps, that a government needs the trust of its citizens in order to operate properly. And of course, this at times requires secrecy, other times requires the lack of admitting of faults, failures, and mistakes made by a government, which is, of course, a human system and therefore susceptible to human fallibility. So I would like to make that distinction. And Adelston goes on to say, if Obama apologizes at Hiroshima, it draws attention to Japanese behavior elsewhere in Asia during the 30s and 40s. It might even be demanded that the Japanese government and emperor go to Singapore and apologize for slaughtering 25,000 Chinese there in 1942, or to Australia to apologize for how they treated their POWs, or to the Philippines for a few hundred thousand murders by the Imperial Japanese Army as well. And so as not to ramble any further, I would say that I find that point by Adelston to be very intriguing, because not only in a political sense, even thinking interpersonally, I've observed and have been a participant in conversations where one apology sets off a string of apologies, because we as people try to prove our empathy often and indicate that we too are capable of apology and that we recognize a mutuality to our faults. But I do think in a political and perhaps in an interpersonal sense as well, apologies are not always a point of sincerity so much as a showing of emotional power, so to speak, almost in the same way that the nuclear bomb was a showing of military power. It is not so much about the actual outcome as it is the implied future outcome of what might come as a result of what's being said or done. And I'd be very curious to hear, as we wind down this episode, what you think about the 21st century's relationship to the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And perhaps as a more pointed question, do you think there is a way to simultaneously acknowledge a guilt or a tragedy in this event, but also withhold an apology for the sake, as Adelston points out, of the torrent of apologies and political complications that might emerge from such a statement? Well, I think in the 21st century, we have an appreciation for the destructive power of the nuclear bomb. And that's because of a large amount of scholarship on this issue, the fact that there are so many books written about it. There have been tremendous amounts of tests on radiation and the effects of nuclear weapons. And the world for seven decades has lived with the threat of annihilation. Admittedly, it has been closer at certain moments throughout history, perhaps in the 1960s especially, rather than today, but the doomsday clock still exists. So I think that there is a large amount of appreciation for nuclear weapons as a destructive tool and a destructive weapon. But I also think in the corridors of power, there is also an understanding, a logical understanding of nuclear weapons as a tool for security and stability. However, that is changing, especially with unpredictable and rogue states like North Korea possessing nuclear weapons. This changes the balance of power in a region, and it changes the obligations of the United States and her allies in providing and maintaining stability and security around the world. I think in considering the morality of the atomic bomb and a potential apology we must also understand that arguably hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Japanese lives were saved. And save is a hard word to use there, but deaths did not take place because of the bomb being dropped. That is a very difficult thing to acknowledge. In my opinion, Truman's decision to use atomic weapons 
was not morally correct. However, there was a far worse evil that would come had they not been used. As a result, the atomic bomb becomes the ultimate ethical dilemma, in part because the existence of the bomb shaped geopolitics and, in effect, our daily lives for the following 70 years. I will say that the United States does not take pleasure in having used atomic weapons. I am, at the same time, however, not ashamed. And I think that's an important distinction to make and something for our listeners to consider. I think it was the right decision. I think that it was, as Winston Churchill said, a decision that was no decision. And it was one that Truman had to make. Another thing to consider, I believe there were around 200,000 casualties from the atomic bombs, but 50 million people died during World War II. Most of them were killed violently. And the Japanese and the Germans perpetrated horrible, horrible atrocities. But the Allies made decisions that were ethically difficult too. Another thing that I think your listeners should consider are the firebombings that took place in Germany and in Japan. More people were killed from those firebombings than the atomic bomb. In Japan in particular, the firebombings of Tokyo and other cities carried out by the Allies were incredibly destructive, but they were not effective in changing the minds of Japanese leadership. And those firebombings are ethically questionable. If you believe that the dropping of the atomic bombs are ethically questionable, then you would believe that the firebombings were too. They took tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives. So it's something to keep in mind. And finally, something to consider is the post-World War II order of nuclear weapons and the potential stability that it caused. Admittedly, that stability was not felt in places in the Second and Third Worlds where American and Soviet competition led to conflict. However, firebombings largely did not take place between great power states. And so nuclear weapons perhaps changed the need for conventional weapons. And the last thing that I think your listeners should consider is that just as the world changed after the atomic bombs in 1945, humanity is making tremendous progress in a number of technological areas. Is it possible that we find a new superweapon? And unlike nuclear weapons that can be maintained by nation states, could potential weapons of mass destruction in the future find their way into the hands of non-state actors or actors without protocols? That concerns me more. Biological agents, electromagnetic pulse events, these are things that are often talked about in science fiction movies. But atomic weapons were science fiction too until 1945. So those are things to consider. Um, It's very easy for us right now in our current global situation to look back on 1945 as an era of historical simplicity. I think all of those points were well said and absolutely worth further consideration. And I appreciate that final point in particular, because if this conversation illustrated anything, I hope it is that we can view historical events with greater clarity after they've happened. But even for this event, which happened over 70 years ago, we still lack clarity because there is such complexity surrounding it. And with that complexity, I would encourage listeners to wade into the gray area, so to speak, because we so often find ourselves pulled towards the black and white. And of course, in military, political, even social conflict among friends, we're forced to take sides. And I don't deny the reality that we often have to pick sides, but I do think the longer we spend considering options and acknowledging the difficulty of certain decisions, the more empathetic we will be, the more appreciative we might be of smaller details, and I also think 
the more informed our decisions will be in the long run after having considered multiple sides. And it may not be a two-sided conflict as it was between Japan and America, although of course there were the Allies and the potential Russian invasion of northern Japan to consider in relation to all of this. I'd also like listeners to think about, and again, we would love your input on this, the devastating power behind the nuclear bomb that was unprecedented at the time and is still a shocking and awesome, in the traditional meaning, power that I don't think we can ever fully wrap our heads around, and it's my hope that we never see nuclear bombs used in the future. And as a final question, I'm thinking both of the stability that we observe after the dropping of the atomic bombs and the use of nuclear power as a form of energy generation. Do you as listeners think that great good or any good can come from potentially evil actions? Which is not to say I find the actions evil, but I respect that perspective and can see why some people would feel that way. And Richard, for coming on to discuss and help explain, historically speaking, I'd like to thank you. And it was great having you on. Thank you, Kip. It's been a real privilege to be on your show. Well, I'm sure it won't be the last time. But of course, as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and especially with a very heavy topic such as this, we would really love to hear from you. So if you have any feelings, thoughts, or opinions of any kind, please reach out to us. You can connect with us via Twitter or on Facebook, where if you like our page, you'll receive weekly updates when we post new episodes. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as reviewing the show and sharing it with someone you think might enjoy it or get something out of it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.